Father, thank you for the grace that you have given to us, that you have freely and graciously and totally um, made your enemies, your children, through Christ. You have adopted us. You have sent your Son into the world uh, to redeem us, to deliver us, that we might become your children. You've sent your Spirit into our hearts that we might cry to you as our Father. And not, not cries of fear and not cries of, of distance or anger or bitterness, but, but heartfelt cries of Abba, Father, Papa, one to whom we can now love and not fear. We don't have to strive to earn his approval. Father, I, I stand among many people who have had all kinds of fathers and some have been harsh and cruel, and some have been distant, and some have been um, hard to please, and some have been very restrictive about their words of affirmation. Some have been loving and caring and gracious. And Father, we know that in a room with this many people, there are many types of fathers that we have all lived under. Perhaps we have not even known our Father. So Lord, would you give us grace through the power of your Spirit to help us understand you as Father today. That you would give us grace to see this word to be not bowled over by it, but encouraged by it, drawn to it, anxious to hear it. Father, give us the grace to see the glory of your Son and all that he has accomplished uh, to draw us uh, those who are far away, to being quite near to you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> I do love this season of Advent because it causes us to think again, what does it mean that Christ has come in the flesh? What does that mean? And, and I mean, and why is it so important? Why should we celebrate it? Why should we be excited about it? You know, the, the word incarnation is, as I said last week, that Latin word for just in the flesh. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book about this great miracle. In fact, he called it The Grand Miracle. And uh, that's the title of the book. And here's what he wrote. He said, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or results from this. Just as every natural event is the manifestation of, At a particular place and moment of nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests itself as a significance of the Incarnation. He says the fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. In other words, the Incarnation is central to understanding everything. He says, if the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of our earth. The very thing that the whole story has been about. Since it happened only once, it is by Hume's standards infinitely improbable. But then the whole history of the earth has also happened only once. Is it therefore incredible? In other words, the incarnation is central to how we understand God. 
It's incredibly important to not allow the familiarity with this time to kind of blind us to what has happened at Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas? And that's what we're going to be looking at over all these weeks. And, and, and today, it's simply this, that the Son, I, I love the way Lewis says it, he says that the Son of God became a Son of Man so that the sons of man might become sons of God. So he has come to make us sons and daughters of God. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, we'll read the first seven verses. Galatians chapter 4, first seven verses, we're looking at how Christ has come to make us into sons and daughters of God. Galatians 4, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. That's his example. That's his illustration. Verse 3, Paul applies it to us. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son or daughter. And if a son or daughter, then an heir through God. Okay, so so Paul, let's pick it up in verse 3. He says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. That's when he's applying it to us. Now, Now, what does this mean? Well, it's very confusing. We know that Paul's speaking about all people. We, he says, that that is both Jews and Gentiles. So Paul is himself a Jew, and he is speaking to the churches in Galatia, and, uh, and they were Gentiles. And so both Jews and Gentiles, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of views on what this means. The elementary principles, the word itself means just in a row. That's all it means. It's the basics of learning, like the ABCs. That's all it is. It's rudimentary teaching. It's the foundational principles that we live by. And now, now, what does he mean that, that we are all enslaved to this? Well, uh, some scholars think that he's speaking about many people who live under the law of Moses. They are a people who are bound by the elementary teachings of the law of Moses. And we have to live this way in order to please God. And, and if we don't live this way, uh, then we're not going to find acceptance with God and, 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 and our future is going to be nil. And so it puts us in bondage. I've got to keep these rules. Now, the law of God is not bad, of course, but if we use the law of God as a means to find acceptance with God, then we become enslaved. And many of you have walked a life through this. You've got to keep all the rules. All the, all, you've got to cross every T, dot every I, and that gets very burdensome and it gets very... Uh, laborious and, and uncertain. Now, he's speaking to Galatians, as I said, he, he, and they, they didn't have the law of God. So he could be meaning to them that there is a natural law that we all obey. I mean, even the pagans feel that there's some divine that they will approach and appeal to. And so whatever law they, they live by, it's the law that they live under. And so it becomes enslaving to them as well. I mean, you don't have to have a law. In Romans chapter 2, people without the law have their own law. 
I mean, I mean, everybody has, well, this is what I think I ought to do. Whatever your divine is, you, you, you have a law that you think is going to please the divine, and then that becomes the burden for you. So, so what he's driving at here, I think, is simply this, that, that all of us, all of human nature is bound to these principles and laws that we live by, and they become burdensome. And at least that helps us explain the first two verses in these, this kind of this illustration that Paul is saying, that even if you're an heir, even if you're intended for something great, when you're a child, you're governed by guardians and managers. Until the date set by the father. In other words, until that child reaches maturity, he's going to be under law. And so Paul's going to apply this to us, and he's saying, until you understand Jesus Christ, you're going to be bound by law. You're going to be bound by some law. It's either the law of the church you grew up in, it's the law of Moses, it can be the law of your making. But there's going to be some law, even if it's the law of the wild, that, that I think I just want to have, I have no law. That's a law. That is a law. And, and so we're all bound by this until our eyes are open to the glory of God in Christ. I think that's what he's saying. And so he's really showing us the predicament of all people. That the, the, the principles, we have certain things we have. Why am I here? What am I doing? What happens after life? If I do this, will God be happy? Whatever God you may have. And, 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 so, and so we're struggling with these things. And, and so people tend to go in two directions. They tend to go in the way of license. And that is that I'm going to carve my own path through the forest. And I'm just going to try to find meaning. I'm going to try to find value in life. And I'm going to do it through relationships, or I'm going to do it through success, or I'm going to do it through, through achieving money or security or significance. But, but I'm going to get these answers. And, and you go the way of license. Now, I want to remind you that many of us, those at least who have had dark years in college, that was the way we live our lives. There are no rules. I'm just going to do everything that seems to please me. Anything that I think will give me happiness, I'm going to do it so that I can be happy. And, and, and yet these liberties become prisons. If alcohol or, or sex or money or success, all these liberties that we pursue, all these paths that we pursue, they can become quite, they, we will fall into bondage with them. Materialism our bodies, the way we eat. Now, now, some people don't go that way, and that would be, just as a, as a point of reference, that would be the younger son in the parable of the prodigal. The prodigal son, he goes away and he tries to find meaning and value in life. And, of course, he gets enslaved in the very liberties that he was enjoying. Okay, the other path that many of us follow is, is that we feel comfortable in conformity to law that we want somebody to tell us what to do. If you just tell me what to do, then I know that I'm doing it, and then I'm going to be happy. My security and my significance is, am I following the law? Now, some of you do that well. And when you do that well, it breeds a sort of self-righteousness. Like, look how good I am. But it doesn't diminish the need to keep doing the law. You have to keep doing it. Otherwise, God or others may not like you. And there's a certain bondage to that. Others of you do it poorly, and when you, try to live in bond, when you try to live according to the law and you don't do it well, then you fall into despair, and you fall into dissatisfaction. Anytime you try to find meaning and value, anytime you're trying to achieve God or, or, or pleasing God through law, you're always, it's going to be like punching smoke. There's no satisfaction in it. Have I done enough? Have I done it long enough? Have I done it well enough? And many, many Christians, and I think this is the problem with the the saints in Galatia, 
they're unsatisfied. You live in slavery. You live in bondage. You live in this sense of, I, I can't be happy because I never know if I'm doing enough. And, and, and the whole chapter 3, Paul, is, Paul has already taught them, the law was a guardian to lead you to Jesus. Once you find Jesus, you don't go back to the law as a means of finding acceptance with God. And yet that's what many of us do in this church and in the evangelical church. It is we, we believe in Jesus, but then we go back to a law, and it leads to insecurity and slavery and fear. So I think this is the predicament of a lot of us. I, I, I look at, it's basic to all religions. The, the Muslim, he doesn't know what's happening. He has to become more and more diligent. He has to be more and more committed. He has to be more and more radical to assure that the things done right are going to outweigh the things done poorly. Buddhism, it's the same way. All the world's religions are functioning on this code of ethics that has to be engaged in and followed out properly. And you're still left uncertain as to what the divine says. And that does create a sense of fear and slavery. And and I think what, what Paul is saying is, for the Christian, there is freedom in Christ. And God is going to answer this predicament for us. And and the way he answers it, I think, is in Galatians 4. You see, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So we are the group over here now. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're a religious person or a non-Christian, it doesn't matter. You're enslaved. So he's saying, but, so in contrast to this, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son. So three things I want you to think through on this Christmas. Three things. Number one, that God has sent a unique son. God has sent a unique son. He's going to do a unique task. He's going to perform a unique function that is going to give us these unique blessings. So those are the three things I want you to think about. He's going to give us a unique son who's going to complete a unique task, and we're going to have unique blessings. So this unique son, we find here in the fullness of time, God sends his son. Now, many people wonder, what does it mean in the fullness of time? And many people look at it from an earthly perspective, and they say, well, it was a great time to start a religion. It was a great time to send Jesus. Why? Well, world centralization, right? Thanks to Alexander the Great, he did a lot in terms of conquering, and and the Greek culture and the Greek language spread everywhere. And so there was a common language. So if you're going to start a religion, the communication is a lot better that way. But not just Greek culture. Of course, in the time with that uh, Paul was preaching, it was the Roman government was leading, and they had brought called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, Th- that there was peace. And if you're going to start a religion, you don't want to start it during wartime. It's very, very difficult. To have a time of peace, it's a beautiful thing. You have the time, and, the, and, and you have less distractions to discuss ideas and philosophies. But also, the, the social, the, um, or at least the trade and the commerce. The Romans had built great roads, and so traveling was relatively safe and easier. And and so if you're going to start a religion, it's great if you can travel about to spread the religion. Not just that, there was a religious vacuum at the time. At the time, uh, people were getting disenchanted with their paganism. Even Judaism, they hadn't heard a word from the Lord in 400 years. And so people were hungry for something new. There was even moral decline. In the culture, Will Durant, the famous historian, said that both the political and economic systems were depressing the people, leading to great moral decline. So when he says in the fullness of time, God sent forth the son, you know, yeah, the time was ripe, I would say. But I don't think that's what he means. I think he means this, that God 
determined, this is the time. It picks it up from verse 2, when the father sets the date that the child will become an adult. God, in the fullness of time, sent the son. God has been working. God is moving history. Let me remind you, just for purposes of context, in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul covers 2,000 years of redemptive history. He starts with Abraham. And he says, listen, God made a promise to Abraham that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. Now, that promise to Abraham, I want to remind you, was given to Adam and Eve before that. In Genesis 3.15, God says that the seed from the woman will crush the head of the serpent and will destroy the curse that has come about by their sin. So you have this promise to Abraham that came from Adam, God leading this promise through Adam to Abraham. Then Paul begins to talk about Moses. Moses, the appointed man of God, to gather a people together, to give them the law of God, that they might be the people of God to the world. Of course, the law was never meant to save them. The law has the power to reveal the holiness of God. The law has the power to reveal your sin, but the law never had the power to help you conform yourself to the law. And so what we have here is Abraham, the promise of a seed coming to bless the nations. You have the demands of the law in Moses. And then Paul says, but then Christ is the seed of Abraham. Listen, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and two seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So in other words, what what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that in the fullness of time, God sent the Son. In other words, God had a plan to bring about the reconciliation of men that began at the fall. In Genesis 3.15, there was a seed promised, Jesus is the seed. So Jesus has now come at the fullness of time. All the sands in the hourglass are filled. It is now time to send the son. And so he sends a son, born of a woman, born under the law. Listen, he's born of a woman. This is really significant. I think Paul's point here is that he's human like us. Now, he doesn't mention the incarnation here, but he also doesn't mention a human father, so I think he assumes it. But he wants us to see his full humanity, that he's like us in every way. Every one of us in here was birthed by a mother, so he. And that as we have struggled with trial and temptation growing up, so he. He is like us in every way. Please, as I I spent more time on it last week, avoid ever thinking Jesus just resembles you. Jesus is like you in every way. You are like him. He's fully human. But he's also born under the law. I think Paul's reminding us here that he's born Jewish. He's born under the law of Moses. And he had to be born under the law of Moses. Why? To join us who have been born under God's law, God's universal law. We're all responsible to God. And yet none of us have kept the law. And so he is born under the law to carry the law, to bear the law, and to complete the law. That's what we're going to find in Matthew 5. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And so he will. So that's the first gift here that God has sent a unique son. Now, let me just remind you, as as Christians today, really I want to remind the Christian and the non-Christian, I I, I don't want to just remind you, I actually want to warn you about something that I see and hear about God, that God is never absent in silence. 
You know, there were 400 years before Jesus Christ was born. But you think about the promise of God from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Jesus. In the fullness of time, he was never absent, although he was often quite silent. You know, I think about the frustration that I can slip into. And even my mind began to go, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Are you not at work? Are you present here? Am I enduring in this alone? Do I only sense your presence when things are going well? And yet God, this reminds us here, God is always moving in history. I mean, history is not random. History is not cyclical. History is not under its own power. History is not just kind of casting itself along. God is guiding history to a certain end. It's important for us to know that for you who are struggling right now, things are not as you want. You're praying and you're praying and, and, and nothing is happening. You're not getting the answers to prayer. You're not sensing his power in your life. Just please, I think the scripture would call us to be patient. That God is never absent when things are silent. He's there moving. You see it through the pages of the entire Old Testament. God was always at work, even though there were large swaths of time that it doesn't seem like he was concerned. But not just that. I would remind you that God works in very ironic ways. It's very ironic that he would choose to not come in glory and power, but to be born of a woman, to be born under the law. He works in very strange ways, a no-name woman in a no-name town, to do a colossal work that will exist for eternity. Why? I mean, I th- but I'm also challenged by the rest of the paradoxes of Scripture. If you want to be rich, you've got to be poor. If you want to be strong, you've got to be weak. If you want to be great, you've got to serve. If you want to live life, you've got to die. There's all kinds of paradoxes, and many of the Christians today, you miss the work of God in your life because you're not looking for those ironies of God, these divine ironies. How God has often done the greatest things in my life when everything feels like it's sitting upside down. And we always want God to work in the method that we've presumed he's going to work. And when he doesn't work that way, then we wonder, where is God? Especially in difficulty. And I think Keith mentioned that today in terms of of our uh, elder forum this morning about how God often does his greatest work in suffering, and yet no one here wants suffering. It's an ironic way that God works. But then I would also say that this, this gift that God's given us in this unique son reminds us that God is very peaceful. I mean, he could have come in power and glory and flatlined everybody. He comes in a very non-threatening way. I mean, he comes as a baby. What is more challenging? I mean, I mean, what is less threatening than a baby? I mean, just a little baby, just naked, can't do anything for himself, has to be cared for. He comes like us, flesh and blood. He lives with us, talks with us. He does everything that we do except for sin. I mean, God's very merciful that way, isn't he? I mean, God doesn't come like a cannonball at us. He comes very gently and very mercifully to us. So when we say that God sent his son, he was sent of a woman under the law. It's a unique gift. But but here's the second part, that he came as a unique son to do a unique task. Look, Look with me in the second half of four. God sent his son, born of a woman, born of the law, to five, to redeem those under the law. This is something only Jesus could do. It was, it, was a, it was a plan designed for Jesus from the beginning of the world. 
that God had designed a plan that Jesus would have to fulfill, and that is to redeem. That word is not used much more in our language, but it was of the slave market. To redeem means you're buying back somebody from slavery. You're purchasing them to give them their freedom. No, we cannot redeem ourselves because we are the slaves, as we've already talked about. We're enslaved. The slave cannot redeem himself. And so God has sent the Son to redeem us. We're under condemnation of the law. Do you realize in Deuteronomy 27, and I want to try, I want to try, try to tie some biblical theology up here for you. In Deuteronomy 27, it says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So God is saying to all people that if you don't do the words of the law, you will be cursed. Well, then who here has done all the words of the law? Has anyone here done all the words of the law? So would this mean that you're all cursed? I think, yeah, it does. You're cursed. You are bearing the condemnation of the law by God. That's the predicament. But Jesus was born of a woman. He was born under the law to redeem those cursed under the law. And Jesus has redeemed us, how? By becoming a curse. Jesus came in flesh and blood of a woman under the law to bear the curse by dying for us. That's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, cursed is anyone. In Galatians 3.13, he quotes Deuteronomy. He says, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. So Christ hangs on a tree to bear the curse of God so that we don't bear the curse of God. So that we're freed from this condemnation of the law. Folks, if you have any understanding to the depth of your depravity and, and, and the weight of the curse that we ought to feel, that he has borne for us, it's profound. I mean, I want you to dwell upon it. But I want you to think about this. The curse that he bore for our sin was the same curse back in Genesis 3.15. Do you see what he's doing? So here at the beginning of God's creation, Adam and Eve are given everything to enjoy God. And yet they cast it all aside to go their own way. And of course, they bear the judgment of their sin, and all things are cursed. But God just slides that promise in 3.15, but a seed's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came and bore the curse that was back there to redeem us. Anselm was a great theologian hundreds of years ago, writes this, For when death had entered into the human race through man's disobedience, it was fitting that life should be restored through the obedience of a man. When the sin, which was the cause of our condemnation, had its beginning from a woman, it was fitting for the author of our justice and salvation to be born of a woman. Since the devil, when he tempted man, conquered him by the tasting of a tree, it was fitting for him to be conquered by man's bearing of suffering on a tree. You see the fullness of time God sent his son, born of a woman, born of a law, to redeem us, to deliver us from this curse of the law. But it's more than that. Look forward. He says, he says so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, the purpose isn't just to free us from sin, but to bring us back into being with God in his family. This is the glory of Christmas. Now, in this time, so if you were a first century person, adoption was a significant event. 
I could take a son and adopt him into my family. He would pick up my name. Yes, that's true, but he would do more than that. He would now be my heir. If I were to die the very next day, he would have everything. When I adopted him, all of his debts were canceled, and all of my assets became his. He became mine. There was this connection between the adoptive parent and the adoptive child that was as solid as the natural born. And what Jesus, what Paul is saying here is that you have been freed from the curse so as to be adopted, that you are now a son or a daughter of God, that the curse has been crushed, and now you can be a a son or a daughter. I mean, this is profound to be a son or a daughter. You know, the Christian calls Father Abba because of this. This is why we call God Father. Because he's our adoptive father. I mean, I, I, I think about many of us still living under the burden of what do I have to do to get God to love me? I haven't had the quiet time. I haven't had the evangelism. I haven't had the success. I'm not as gifted. Does God not love me? And we begin to question God's love for us. Many of you, when you became Christians, I think you thought, well, my sins are forgiven. But did you think that you were adopted? Did you think that you're now loved of God? No more striving? No more bondage to live under the law? That now you're free. You're free men, you're free women. The only law you have is to love. And to love one another. That's the law that we have. The law of love. I I want you to think about this because the, the profound nature, and I love the testimonies that we heard from these members of our church about their own love for their adoptive kids. It's, it's really important to dwell upon this idea of, of adoption because it really declares the grace of God in unique ways. And a, a child cannot adopt himself in. God has to adopt them into the family. And, and God has done that with all of us. All Christians are adopted. In other words, when you think about heaven and you think about the collection of, of all of God's people, do you realize they all were enemies of God at one point? Every single one of them. They've all been adopted. There will be no natural born other than Christ. They're all adopted. We are all adopted. Every voice giving praise to God in heaven will be an adopted voice in heaven with God. We're all the same. For those of you who are Christian, can you reflect with joy and satisfaction on this? Can you... I mean, can you begin to try to wrap your mind around it? You will need to exercise mental diligence to understand this because we are so performance-driven. We think if we do this in every area of life, you are graded by how you perform. And now to go and look at God and to be able to cry out, Abba, Father, will not be easy. It will take you the balance of your life to understand the profound nature of adoption. But I'd ask you to engage it. For those of you who are not Christian, this is how adoption takes place. That faith is placed in Christ as our Redeemer. Now, let me explain this. Uh, To become a Christian, to become an adopted child of God, isn't simply recognizing that Jesus existed, or even that Jesus existed as God's Son, born of a woman, or that Jesus came to kind of example the love of God. What we are called to have faith in is that Jesus has come to bear the curse that should fall on you. 
and that He's come to bear your sins and to bear your shame. And that through Him bearing the full vent of God's fury. So I want you to think of God exhausted from venting His fury on the Son over your sin. And God is spent. He has no fury left. He has no wrath left. He has no justice left to mete out. He has spent it all on the Son, and now you come into the room as a son or a daughter. That is what we believe. The substitutionary atonement. And when I say that the Christian believes this, I don't mean it's an intellectual cognizance. I'm saying that there is a knowledge of it. I understand it, and I assent to it. I agree that it's true. But there's also a trust. There is a wholehearted leaning upon that being my hope for a future. That, that it's not Jesus and something. It's just that. And that is sufficient to please God that I might be a son. So this is the second gift. And, and if there are those of you who are stirred in your spirit now over the fact that you are outside of the family of God, that you cannot call God Abba Father, and, and you, you do feel estranged from God, then please come forward after the service or grab one of the elders up front and speak to us about that. So God has given us a unique son. He's given us, the son has completed a unique task. And then this is the last point, that he is, um, that there are unique blessings that come out of this. And this is what I want you to think about with me. Because my eyes were kind of open to this when I was preparing it. Look at verse 6. He says, and because you are sons, so Paul is assuming that he's speaking to people who are legitimate sons of God. They have been adopted. Now you've got full rights of sons. He says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay, he's saying, okay, we saw in verse 4, God sent his son into the world. Now look, in verse 6, God has sent his spirit into the hearts of his sons and daughters. Now this, notice what it says. He sent the spirit of his son. This isn't a fourth member of the triune God. Uh, This is Paul's way of explaining that the Spirit of God is the one who mediates the presence and the power of Christ in the life of the believer. But what he's saying here is very instructive, and I think it's it's flown over the heads of most of us. It, It has for me, at least in its significance. He's saying this. This is the gift. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because your sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, we're saved from verses 4 and 5. This, this objective reality that God has brought forth a son who entered space and time and has died our death, bore our sins, and bore the wrath of God. But the Spirit is given. God sent the Son into the world. God sends the Spirit into the hearts of people to understand that and to enjoy that. It's the Spirit of God in the soul of men and women that they can cry out, Oh, Abba, Father, no more distance. No more fear of God. There's a joy in God. There's a satisfaction in God. There's a longing to see the one who is my Father. And that is the work of the Spirit applying this objective work of Christ. So we are to be satisfied people. We are to be joyful people. We are to experience the joy of God. That we don't have this cold, clinical, theological religion. We have an ongoing, active, experiential enjoyment of God through the power of the Spirit applying the work of the Son. This is why we're triune people. All three are moving to draw us back. 
The Spirit is the one that is given to us to warm our hearts to God, to see the glory of Christ. I mean, people don't just naturally draw up to God, not the God of the Bible. They draw up to Santa Claus, but they don't draw up to the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is, has wrath and he, he brings justice to sinners. They don't draw up and, and find him snugly. Usually people find God prickly, particularly when they read the Old Testament. But the Spirit of God opens your eyes and you say, no, he's good, he's gracious, he's kind, he's merciful. I want to know him. This is exactly what Paul writes in Romans 8 when he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So this last gift, this idea of blessings, the Christian has an assurance now that you're no longer a slave, but you're a son by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that moves you from glory to glory. The Spirit's changing you to see God differently. The Spirit is moving in you to see yourself as sons, to begin to walk away from sin. The Spirit is encouraging you that, yes, I'm saved. That experiential enjoyment of God is what we want you to have. Not some charismatic chaos, up and down feelings of God, but, but, but a deep-seated heart full of love and devotion for God. And if you don't have this, then the question is, does the Spirit reside within you? It, it, it's, he makes your adoption real. You know, Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher in London in the 19th century, preached a whole sermon on adoption called The Father Kissed the Son. In other words, in the parable of the prodigal son, when the father runs out to meet that lost son, and he says he grabs him, and he kisses the son. That's the experience of the Spirit drawing us to love God. I mean, how many of you? I, Martin Lloyd Jones was another preacher, British preacher in the nineteenth or twentieth century. He tried to describe it this way. He said, if a father is walking with his daughter hand in hand. The daughter knows he is her father. And her status as a daughter is clear. But then the father reaches down and picks up the daughter and hugs her and kisses her. Her status hasn't changed. She's just the same, a daughter, as she was before. But the experience of the father is much deeper and more profound. That's what the Spirit is looking to do for us, to give us an assurance that God has a love for you. And it's, it, it's drawing you to love the Father. That's why Jesus Christ has come, not just to free you from sin and to adopt you, but that in your heart you would be able to cry out, yes, God, I love you. Abba, Father, I, I want to see you. That term of familiarity, a closeness with God, not some clinical understanding of God. That's, no way does that represent Christianity. In fact, J.I. Packer, a modern-day theologian, wrote this about the fatherhood of God. He said, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Let me say that again, and I want you to put yourself in this. So he says this, find out how much he makes of the thought 
of being God's child and having God as his father. So what do you make of that? What do you personally, individually make of you having God as your father and you being his child? Do you think about it? Do you consider it? Does it warm your heart? Are you ambivalent to it? Are you careless about it? Do you not even think about it? He says this, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls your worship and your prayers and your whole outlook on life, the way you look at the job, the way you look at the wife, the way you look at the kids, the way you look at money, the way you look at sex, the way you look at everything. If it doesn't prompt and control his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means we don't understand Christianity very well at all. So what does that say about us? Do we understand Christianity very well? I mean, this, for me, I was, I, I was taken aback by it as I was writing it and thinking about it. I thought, I don't think I understand Christianity very well at all. Because I don't make a ton about God as my father. I, I will. And I'm going to. But that's what it means to provide assurance that God has sent the Spirit into our hearts. But then there's one other thing. Look in verse 7. Because Paul says, So then you are no longer a slave but a son. And if you're a son, then an heir through God. Not only has he made you a son, but by virtue of you being a son, you're naturally going to be an heir. Now, of course, in this day, if you were a slave in a household and the master died, you'd get nothing. But if you were adopted into the master's family, then you would partake in that which the master had. And so what Paul's saying here is, do you get what I'm saying? You're not just a son, you're an heir. You, people, the Christian here, you're an heir to all the promises of God. That's what he says in Galatians 3.29. All the promises given to Abraham are now yours. So, so if Tom Mercer, if I knew that within 10 years I would come into some fortune that was profound, where I could walk into some situation where I had total wealth, and total health, and total relational harmony, and a total enjoyment of God, if I knew that was mine within 10 years, would it not change the outlook of my life today? I think the implication would be absolutely. I mean, absolutely. If I knew that was coming to me, then my life would look different today. I think he's saying that. You're an heir through God. So Christmas is huge for you because for the Christian For the adoptive son or daughter of God, you are an heir of all the promises of God. The promises of God in Scripture that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll forgive you. I'll be with you. I'll strengthen you. I'll feed you. I'll care for you. Those are like jewels in a box that you can just run your hands through and just enjoy. They are yours because now you've been brought into the family of God. So why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, because we're people in a predicament. We're all enslaved to our own idolatries. And yet God has sent a unique son. He's sent a a unique son to do a unique work of redemption leading to adoption. And he has sent a unique son to do a unique work to provide unique blessings, which is the assurance that God is our father and that we are his heirs. So would you join with me in praying and giving thanks to God? Let let me just close this and then we're going to pray. Spurgeon, I, I just have one more quote. I know that I quote you to death with this guy. But you don't even know how many I pass over and stick back in the file. But, but here's what he says. He says, let us remember that Christ on the cross is of no value to us apart from the Spirit. This is the role of verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7, God sent the Spirit into our hearts to apply the truth of 4 and 5. 
He says, in vain that blood is flowing, unless the finger of the Spirit applies the blood to our conscience. In vain is that garment of righteousness wrought out, unless the Spirit wraps it around us and arrays us in its costly folds. The river of the water of life cannot quench our thirst till the Spirit presents the goblet and lifts it to our lips. All the things which are in the paradise of God could never be blissful to us so long as we are dead souls, and dead we are until the heavenly wind comes and breathes upon us that we may live. We do not hesitate to say that we owe as much to God the Holy Spirit as we do to God the Son. So let's pray now. I'll begin, and then um, Ray's going to close us in prayer in just a moment. And let's give thanks to God for his gracious act of providing a son that we would, um, who would redeem us and that lead us, and that our prayers now, we can appeal to God as a father, not as a distant deity, but as a loving, caring father. Let me start, and then Ray can close us in a few minutes. Father, these truths and the value of these words is beyond tracing out. I confess that I have made little of them, and I understand less. Would you open our eyes to this glorious truth that our lives might reflect the freedom and joy that you intend for us.